from AM and FM stations around the country. Welcome to the Small Business Administration award-winning School for Startups Radio, where we talk all things small business and entrepreneurship. Now, here is your host, the guy that believes anyone can be a successful entrepreneur because entrepreneurship is not about creativity, risk, or passion, Jim Beach. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another exciting edition of School for Startups Radio. Today is March 1st. Can you believe it? Welcome to March. And we have a fantastic day to celebrate. First up, we have Dr. Eric Siegel, an incredible resume and background. He is an artificial intelligence machine learning expert. We're going to start off with that question. What's the difference between AI and and machine learning. He has some great answers, great insights about where the technology is going, what we need to be worried about, beneficial aspects as well. So I'm really excited for you to meet Dr. Siegel. After that, TJ Murphy is with us from the incredibly sexy city at the time, right now, Bend, Oregon. I'm hearing so much about Bend and all the cool things going on there and how beautiful it is. Anyway, from Bend, we have TJ Murphy. He is a digital marketing expert and is doing some really cool things in that space. And I know you will learn from him as I did. And he's also into the adventure stuff. We didn't get into that enough, but adventure entrepreneurship, uh, TJ sounds like a really interesting sort. We have a lot of other great stuff coming up here soon. Uh, next week, we have, we're going to talk about renegade medicine in a good way. RV rentals as part of a second income. We're going to talk about creating video content for your speaker reels. We're going to find out about a new food delivery system that focuses on minorities and minority-owned businesses. We're going to have a whole day devoted to mental health and mental health entrepreneurship all coming up next week. So great stuff coming up and great stuff today. Let's go ahead and get started in just a second. Thanks for being with us. School for Startups Radio hopes you will reach out to us if you have any questions or comments, or if you need help with your business at any stage, from concepts to exit. Jim accepts all connections on LinkedIn. He tweets from at Entrepreneur Jim, and he responds to emails at james.beach at att.net. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy the show. <laughs> we are back, and again, thank you so very much for being with us on this beautiful first day of March. I hope it's beautiful where you are. You know, we have the option to make it beautiful. It's your attitude that counts, even if it's raining, right? I got a fantastic first guest for you today. Very excited to learn from him. Please welcome... Dr. Eric Siegel to the show. He is all over machine learning. He is author of a new book called The AI Playbook, Mastering the Rare Art of Machine Learning Development. He was a professor at Columbia University and was ranked one of the highest professors there, won all sorts of teaching awards, also taught at Darden at uh, UVA, has spoken and been quoted everywhere, Bloomberg, uh, 
the list goes on and on for five or six lines. Huffington Post, everywhere, Harvard Business Review, New York Times, Newsweek, Salon, all of the good ones. Dr. Siegel, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Tim. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm located in Marin, just north of San Francisco, and it's actually beautiful here, too. Well, good. March brings in the nice weather then. Oh, yeah. It's, it's awesome. All right. What is the difference? I'm going to ask a stupid question first. Maybe all my questions will be stupid, Eric. What's the difference between machine learning and AI, artificial intelligence? Are they the same Not- thing, a subgroup of each? I don't get it. What's the difference? Yeah, that's that's not a stupid question. Uh, people often think of AI as a broader area and machine learning fits under it. I don't think of it that way. I think of AI as a brand that tends to oversell. Um, but it's the way in which most people know of machine learning. What we hear about is AI. What we get is machine learning. Machine learning learns from data to predict. Prediction is, that, is the holy grail for improving all large-scale operations and targeting marketing, fraud detection, uh, credit... Man- risk management decisions, where to drill for oil, which satellite to check for running out of battery, uh, which com- I know you recently had a guest on which uh, uh, component of a very large industrial oven is going to fail. So that, that's how you get value from data is learning to predict. Predictions directly inform actions to be taken with those individual humans, customers, components, satellites, wheels of a train, et cetera. I actually know the lady who does the wheels of the subway trains in New York and does the predictive technology uh, and lets them know when they need maintenance and all of that. I, I've met her. She's an amazing woman. African-American, too, runs that business, I believe. Eric, um, well, I'm going to make you introduce me to her after we complete the segment. Oh, God, now I'm going to have to remember her name. You're going to make me embarrassed <laughs> now. Uh, I was a judge for the business person of the year, and... She was one of the winners, so I'll have to go back oh, wow. and dig that out. Oh, it was a cool business. I mean, how cool was that? Predicting when subway cars are going to break, saving millions of do- yep. uh, dollars. So so now I'm already confused. You keep talking about prediction. I thought, and again, I'm going to change words here. AI was teaching my computer to do stuff for me. Like, uh, I... I, I, I so I have a routine that I do every day. I do the same six things on the computer every day, and now I can program F1 to do those six things for me. Am I wrong? Well, it's going gonna, it's gonna to anticipate your need. It's going to anticipate which movie you want to watch, product recommendations, which book to buy, um, and that's all based on prediction, right? I mean, prediction is the way things serve you, right? All of our experience as consumers in the world is dictated by how we're treated and served by organizations, and every day more and more of their millions of decisions are in fact determined by predicting whether you're going to click buy, lie or die, commit an act of fraud, turn out to be a bad credit risk. And they're deciding who to contact, investigate, incarcerate, set up on a date or medicate. And it's wow, all based on that those was a list, Eric. God, you did that. Well, I was Thanks, impressive. Tim. Well, it's part of my rap. I have, I have a, I have a short uh, educational rap, three and a half minutes long called predict this. Give us the first can 20 go to- seconds. Would you? Oh, I, I haven't. I mean, it's from 10 years ago. Okay. Predictive analytics. <laughs> uh, Who could have predicted this? Predict, predict whether you'll click by lie or die. It ain't <laughs> astrological. It's math. It's methodological. So better pay attention because my flow is pedagogical. Awesome. I love it. All right. So different from how does this fit in with generative AI, which is 
writing letters for me and drawing cool pictures for me. Exactly. And in fact, it's the same underlying core technology, machine learning, and it's, those things are also driven by, uh, by predictions because at each point in time, it's, it's predicting, okay, what should be the next word that I write? I've written these two paragraphs and then half a sentence. What should be the next word? It's predicting what would be the best word to come. Actually, it's token, which is basically on the level of word. Um, it includes stuff like punctuation and morphology of words. But basically, what should the next word be? And then by predicting it, it writes that next word, and then it does it again. Same thing with generating images. It's looking at an individual uh, pixel, and, and it's saying, hey, as I render, and I'm the machine in this story, as it renders this, this image, how should we change this individual pixel in the next iteration? Again, again. Same, same deal. It's prediction. Learning from data to predict just applied in a very different way. So generative AI is great for first drafts of content, writing, code, images. All right. As a business owner, I keep reading these jobs that are these articles that jobs are going to be lost, right? There was an article I saw today that white collar jobs are starting to disappear and they are shocked that that's happening. So how can I use machine learning to improve my business is it something that i can afford is the roi there i'm a two million dollar business we're, we, we do dental supplies eric just to make up something is there a use there or not oh yeah oh yeah absolutely i mean so the first part of what i was talking about predict in order to target a, a decision i mean all your large-scale operations like marketing and, and fraud detection, credit risk management, consists of many decisions that are best informed with predictions. So those kinds of use cases, you could, if you want to differentiate them from generative AI, we can call them predictive AI. They're the, they're the longstanding enterprise use cases of machine learning, also known as predictive analytics, which is the title of my earlier first book. Um, and that area is really where we have a longer-term established track record. It's older, but not old school. There's very much, uh, only the tip uh, of the iceberg has been tapped. There's so much more untapped potential. And that's where you turn, and that's where you stand to gain when you want to improve your existing large-scale operation. Whereas generative AI is going to create these first drafts, often very adeptly. You, so they're, they're really apples and oranges. They're, they're not really in competition with each other, even though they both fall under this, quote, AI, which is kind of a subjective umbrella. They both are built on some of the same underlying core technology, but really it depends on your situation, which one or whether you want to try to tap both. In the case of generative, anyone can use it. Go make an account on ChatGPT, play with it, see if it helps you. Whereas predictive, that's more of an enterprise thing. It's got to be a group project, and that's the focus of my new book, The AI to the AI playbook, which is about getting those projects actually successfully to deploy. But even if you're a relatively small business or a medium-sized business, it's the size of the operation that matters. That's where you're looking at where the opportunity, the use case is defined by what's predicted and what's done about it for targeting marketing, for supply change management decisions, uh, for, for um, uh, manufacturing uh, fault detection any and all of the places where there's a lot of decisions being made and they could stand to be improved. In the subtitle, Mastering the Rare Art of Machine Learning Development, a couple things. Why is it rare? Why is it an art? Well, that's a great question. Now, 
I'm going to correct you on something that uh, uh, a number of people have also made this error. It's the last word of the title is machine learning deployment, not development. And in Ooh, fact, right. I misread. I, I, I was yeah, but that's, guessing what it was that's going actually, to be. I was doing my own AI and got it wrong. <laughs> exactly. And, and that's what I'm trying to correct. Actually, that, that, that sort of frequent error symbolizes or parallels exactly what I'm trying to address, which is that models, which is the thing you learn from data, the thing that then can make predictions, um, get developed well. The technology, the math, the number crunching is really sound. The science is good. It came out of the lab. It's awesome. But is it getting deployed? It's one thing to develop a model. It's another to actually deploy it, to integrate it, to start using it to actually change whatever that large-scale operation is. And if it's the largest-scale operation, you stand the most to gain, but you're going to also have the highest risk if you try to change and the, the, the highest inertia, the highest resistant resistance to change. So we have to get change. We can't get value from predictions unless we act on them, unless we change um, our operations. So for example, I have a UPS. I know you've been involved with UPS. I have a UPS case story. I could, I could describe please, that story. Please, I love uh, UPS stories. Their headquarters is a whole mile from where I sit. Really? Okay. Well, this story pertains to all the individual shipping centers, but very much was spawned from headquarters. And it started out with this guy, Jack Levis, who is a director of process management. And he had this great idea. He has small team working kind of working on on the side. And then he had to go in headquarters and get some executives to buy into it initially. And there was resistance because this was about improving an established process for a company that's now more than a hundred years old of how well it might efficiently deliver 16 million packages a day. So what happens is at the shipping center, it's sort of the last mile of delivery or last few miles, literally to the actual final destination. They have to decide overnight how to allocate all the packages going out tomorrow into the different trucks to do the very best to maximize over all these trucks, over all these shipping centers, uh, and, and decrease the use of, of, of driver time and decrease, the use of gas, right? It's a huge process and, and, and improving it just a bit stands, stands to benefit the company tremendously. If only he could get change put into place. What happened, so what he does, what they do now is they predict tomorrow's deliveries in order to better optimize them. What I mean by that is that they have to start that planning overnight and finish the packing of the trucks. That whole process has to start before they even know for sure all the packages that are going to come in. There's a certain there's a lot of sources of uncertainty there. So what they do is they um, by predicting packages they not they're not definitely sure of now. Now they have a more complete set of the likely set of packages for tomorrow, and now they have a a more complete view with which to use their system to optimally assign different packages to different trucks. By doing that in combination with prescribing better truck driving routes, right? Well, that's also important. If you've packed a truck to be op so it could potentially have an optimal driving route, that doesn't mean it's going to actually drive optimally unless you actually prescribe the exact driving route to that driver. And you put that all together because of that to this day, uh, UPS saves 185 million miles of driving a year, $350 million, 8 million gallons of fuel, and 185,000 metric tons of emissions. And they're still laying off 12,000 people. Yeah, well, that, that's new news. This, this, story, this story kind of predates that, so I'm not quite sure if there's a connection. Yeah. 
Oh, I, I don't know that there's a connection. Uh, they're not going to fire drivers. They're not. They're not getting rid of the mm-hmm. drivers. They're getting rid of people in the headquarters. All the people who live in my neighborhood. Uh, everyone's right. Well, and that kind of that, that brings up the question. I don't think I answered that. We got we got a little sidetrack. You were asking me about well, jobs being at risk. I think that there's economics is economics, and there's going to be ebbs and fault flows. But I think the 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 supposed threat of AI wholesale taking over roles, I think that's part of the hype that's actually hurtful for everybody because it, it make it causes nerves where they aren't needed and oversells the technology. It's not autonomous. It can't we're not creating artificial humans. Someone's gotta run do, the damn thing, right? Yeah, I mean and they that can do certain makes a tasks. bunch of money. Uh, yeah, potentially if, if it's, if it's saving a company, um, you know, $350 million a year, for example. Um, but it's, it's just, so in that, in those kinds of predictive use cases, you're figuring out exactly where predictions going to help a large scale existing operation and improve it. And that could be for marketing and with marketing, for example, it's much more straightforward. If the individuals likely predicted as likely to buy, then spend the $2 sending them a direct mail. It's fascinating that you say that the jobs are not going to be lost, you know, because when we think about new technology, and I'm going to choose maybe a bad example. Remember when printers came out and that was going to end us printing, you know, because, you know, uh, you didn't need to print it as much, right? You don't have to, uh, you know, they just thought that computers were going to save a lot of paper in the end. And we turned out that there are a lot of people who like me print with every iteration, right? I write a new chapter. What do I do? Print the whole damn book again. Right. And yeah, we see a lot of technology not turning out the way we thought that it was going to be. Um, anyway, I, I think there's, well, a I'm not saying, I'm not saying AI. that ahead, anytime you automate, anytime you kind of automate even part of a task, or make something more efficient, there does stand to be economic shifts. I'm saying that I don't think that the fear, I think that the fears are overblown. I don't mean that there's no changes coming from, from this type of improvements as well as many others. There are changes, there are shifts and they can be painful. And we want, we want to do everything we can to ameliorate that pain and help people shift, uh, you know, where, where, you know, to take a, to make a metaphor, self-driving cars, it's not, a, not even a metaphor, right? It's closely related because it does depend on machine learning. Um, you know, once we have fully autonomous vehicles, a lot of jobs are going to go away. Now that's a perfect example where it's, uh, the promise is overblown. Cause I, I strongly believe as many others do that it'll take at least 30 or 40 years before that becomes widespread. I think that, I think that it's a lot of hype to say that you're going to push a button and all of the Teslas are going to come alive tomorrow. Um, but, uh, but things like that do change the world, right? So there's no getting around away from that. At the same time, I think it's really important to understand we're not creating artificial humans. We're not creating things that are general capabilities like people do. Yeah. I have a feeling that we're going to end up with people making $300,000 a year as the AI specialist. And there are going to be some jobs lost, but not as many as they they say. I'm going to agree with you. In the book, you go through the six steps to successful deployment, right? Where, and you made a great point that development is very different from deployment. Is deployment 90% of the failures? that they develop something good and then don't deploy 
Is it is that the step that it fails at? Yes, it, it very much is. And I've been involved with a bunch of industry research where we survey data scientists. They make the models. They develop them. You know, when you make so something, why? then hopefully why don't you're, they, they, you're I spent the money to build it. Why won't I implement it now? So there's a disconnect. Basically, the, the business side, the stakeholders, they're not getting involved in the details. They don't quite get it. And if you don't get your hands dirty, your feet will get cold. So it's the cold feet thing and the failure gets swept under the rug. Most new machine learning projects fail to deploy, not all of them. Uh, you know, if it's 20%, something like that of, of the new initiatives that actually succeed, that's still a lot because there's a lot of initiatives, but outside of big tech and a handful of, 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 uh, very uh, aggressive leaders and, and forerunners like UPS. Um, these projects really routinely fail and it's because of that di disconnect. And that's what I'm addressing in my, in my book, the AI playbook. Yes. The six step playbook practice uh, framework paradigm. And I call it biz ML. So it's the business practice for running machine learning projects. Um, and the six steps basically are to plan a reverse. The first step is to plan for the last. And the last step, the culmination is deployment, the actual integration, operationalization, the use of the predictions to, in to improve, which means change operations. And we have no idea what the ROI could be. Do we, do we know when we deploy or is it, yeah, so um, for most of, of these, like, well, you know how they write a bill and we're not allowed to know what's going to happen until the bill is actually passed, right? Is it like that? Right. No, in most cases, you can make a really good forecast of how much value would be achieved, but that's actually one of the key missing ingredients is that for some reason, that type of calculation is, is omitted. But, you know, so right now what happens is you make something that predicts how well does it, you know, when you're trying to predict who's going to click by lie or die, a lot of these are human behavior. We don't have clairvoyance. We can't com expect computers to, but what they can do is predict a lot better than guessing and oftentimes better than other humans. So that actually means value. That's where your tipping business is a numbers game. Most direct mail is junk mail is, is junk mail straight to the recycling bin. Um, many legitimate transactions get held as potentially fraud, et cetera. What we're doing with these predictions is giving the, the business over a large number of, of cases, the ability to tip those odds a bit in your favor. And that ends up making a tremendous difference. In fact, it's one of the last remaining points of differentiation for large scale operations. Um, so we can, uh, we can measure how well the thing predicts, but that's not where we should stop. So we can make these sort of technical predictions of how much better than guessing does this thing predict how accurate is it? But that doesn't necessarily tell you the ROI, the profit, the number of dollars saved on avoiding fraud cases, et cetera, that you would gain. Translating it to a business metric, a, a key performance indicator like those types of things, profit, savings, numbers of customers saved, et cetera, that's an absolute key. That is a, I have a chapter on that in the book, also a brand new Sloan Management Review, MIT Sloan Management Review article that just came out last week. Um, on that very topic. And that's one of the main uh, necessary uh, uh, shifts that I think the, uh, the industry needs if we're going to improve the deployment track record. What is the biz ML and how would Caterpillar use it? 
So BizML is the six steps to machine learning deployment. And, you know, the first step is establishing what the deployment's going to be. The last step is deployment. And it steps you through uh, pre-production where you get involved even as a business stakeholder, anybody affected, touched by, or making decisions about the project, even if you're not a data scientist, you need to ramp up on some semi-technical understanding and getting get involved. And the semi-technical is quite straightforward. So what's predicted, how well, and what's done about it. So Caterpillar... They, they actually presented at my Machine Learning Week conference series, um, and that was a few years ago. But there's all sorts of, you know, anybody who manufactures equipment has both manufacturing applications and then marketing applications. They may also have fraud detection applications. They're doing a lot of transactions. So for manufacturing, as an item rolls off the assembly line, some sensors might look at it and say, hey, look. Uh, there's a more likely chance than average that this one particular piece of equipment is going to have a fault. Let's spend an extra hour inspecting it with an expert human. That costs money. We don't want to do it for every item, but we want to decide how to spend the time on that. Driven by prediction, you're making a huge difference. It costs a lot to not, to not find the problem, but it also costs a lot to add extra inspection time when there's no problem. Both of those errors cost something. You're trying to strike a much better balance, and that's what you can do with prediction. So again, what's predicted, how well, and what's done about it. The how well is what I was vamping on a moment ago as part of putting an actual number quantifying how good it is, both in terms of pure predictive performance and the potential business benefit. And then what's done about it is pretty straightforward, but you have to work through the details. Um, you know, if this thing is predicted as five times more likely than average to be faulty, then put it in this other bin and, and uh, John, the expert, is going to go uh, take a look at it to make sure it does not have a fault, right? Whatever the actual operational change that hinges on that prediction, right, where you're going to be decreasing costs or increasing uh, uh, benefit and profit in some way. So those three things, what's predicted, how well, and what's done about it, correspond to the first three of six steps, but not quite in that order. So you establish the deployment goal, the prediction goal, that's exactly what's predicted in, in, in a very detailed way, and then those metrics, the quantification of it. Those are sort of the pre-production. And then the other three steps of BizML are basically intrinsic to any machine learning project. Prep the data, train the model, that is, that's the rocket science part. That's where you're applying machine learning to learn from historical data. And now deploy the model. Apply what's been learned, which means you use the model to make the predictions and act on those predictions within an operational context so you're actually making a change and improvement to operations. So that last step is where you act. If you don't actually act on the model, it's literally use less. You're not using it. And you're not getting it, you know, the, the analysis itself looks pretty and sits in the PowerPoint, but doesn't deliver any value unless you act on it. When we started this interview, Eric, I thought ML was a technology product. Now I hear that the vice president of production should be in charge of it. Uh, well, as far as who's running the project, I'm pretty agnostic. It really depends on the particular project and organization. But, but somebody's got to usher. Point. I'm trying to. It's not about technology. This is about uh, the organization. Yes. the business it's, it's itself. A, yeah, this is a consulting gig. It's not a technology install. Right, the, right. A machine okay. learning project. 
we shouldn't call it a machine learning project. We should call it an operations improvement project that yes. necessarily uses machine learning as one of the tools. Exactly. Yes. That's what I'm really getting from you. Yeah. Um, and so if you're on the business side, more than anything else, it's you that these projects need not better technology and the, or better data scientists. It's your participation after ramping up a bit on those, that level of technical of, of semi-technical understanding. It's not the core rocket science. It's how to capitalize on it. It's not the actual number crunching part, although that's interesting. You can get a good idea. I have a good general idea of internal combustion, but I don't know anything about how my engine works. I don't even know where the spark plugs are, but to drive a car, I need a lot of expertise. I need to know uh, friction, momentum, how the car operates, rules of the road and mutual expectations of other drivers. And uh, likewise, you need analog analogously to drive a machine learning project successfully, you need to get involved in, in some concrete semi-technical details. I think that's my big takeaway from this book, which is kind of surprising because I never would have thought that. I would have assumed that this was technology all day long. Uh, right, and that's an easy assumption to make unless you start getting involved, which is why most of these projects are failing. Yep, yep. All right, so one of your business students comes up to you and says, hey, Professor Siegel, I want to start or I want to prepare myself to be as successful in business as I can for the next 50 years. How do I become machine learning AI competent so that it helps my career, not hurts my career? What do I need to learn? So that when someone sees my resume, they go, this guy is someone that's going to help us with AI. We're not going to replace him with AI. You understand what I mean? Sure. Well, I mean, I, I'm advocating strongly that kind of new data literacy, which isn't really quite on the table. There generally aren't MBA courses for this. There generally aren't books on it, uh, you know, with a few rare exceptions, including my new book, The AI Playbook. This is the culture shift is needed so that this becomes more prevalent. But yeah, that's semi-technical understanding. You don't need to know how to load the data and make a model and evaluate its area under the receiver operating characteristic curve. No, you need to understand what's predicted, how well, and what's done about it in concrete business level terms that are specific. They're semi-technical in, in that they, they get kind of detailed, but they're not, they're not the math. The, I mean, the, the, they're most arithmetic. Wow. Everything, all the math I need, I learned in the third grade, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Except it just have to, we just have to apply it. We're just not applying it. We're like, Hey, look, this thing predicts five times better than guessing. Cool. But let's apply a little bit more arithmetic and say, well, how, how does that turn into profit? Dr. Siegel, how do we find out more? Follow you online, get a copy of the book. Uh, the book's website is bizml, B-I-Z-M-L dot com. And there's a bunch of information about me there as well. Uh, links to the retailers if you want the book. You know, the book is meant not just to espouse those six steps, but along the way, ramp up readers on that exact semi-technical understanding that's often uh, missing from these projects. All right. And a book, the book again is called The AI Playbook, Mastering the Rare Art of Machine Learning Deployment. Yes, deployment. Let's get them deployed. Let's get these things deployed. Oh. Dr. Siegel, thank you so much for being with us. Great stuff. Really uh, very, very useful and appreciate your time. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks, Jim. And we will be right back.
Well, that's a, that's, a, that's a wonderful question, actually, Jim. Oh, my gosh. I love the opportunity to do this. Thank you, Jim. Wow, that's, that's, a, that's a great one. You know, that is a phenomenal question. That's a great question, and, and I don't have a great answer. It, that's a great question. Oh, that is such a loaded question. And that's actually a really good question. School for Startups Radio. We are back, and again, thank you so very much for being with us. Very excited to introduce my next guest. Please welcome TJ Murphy to the show. He is the owner of Height Digital Marketing. It is based in Bend, Oregon. He also runs a local, uh, like a guide to the uh, community called World Local, and is very active in the outdoor world. He has a podcast called adventurous entrepreneurs podcast where he talks about the amazing fun that all of us entrepreneurs have on our crazy journeys tj welcome how you doing oh i'm doing well jim thank you for having me it's a it's a pleasure to be here and excited to have a fun conversation let's get into it yeah looking forward to it how is the economy in oregon now how are things looking there at a macro level well, it depends on where you're at in Oregon. So I'm I'm here in beautiful Bend, Oregon, where everybody's moving here right now. It's it's a hot place. It's a hot market, especially during COVID and, and post-COVID as more and more people were moving remote. They're all looking to live in a place where they can have the lifestyle that they, they want to live. So we live in nature's playground here. It's It's the adventure mecca of Oregon. I would say the entire Pacific Northwest. We have beautiful mountains, lakes, rivers, everything that if you enjoy recreating, you're gonna you're gonna love Bent. So that's pushing the economy here. Tons of growth, lots of people moving in, and businesses are are really doing well overall. The biggest hurdle is finding the people to be able to work hiring good employees and the cost of living here is, is quite high. So that's the biggest challenge that, that our local economy is facing. Oregon in general, pretty standard across the board comparatively to the rest of the country. Places like Portland are definitely having their struggles. Smaller towns are having their struggles. But, but here in Bend, things are doing pretty well. Is it a tourist economy? How much of it's based on tourism? A lot of tourism. A lot and of tourism. homes. Yeah. Well, look. A little bit of both. I mean, there's there's definitely a a major population here. You know, this this used to be a small logging town of you know, ten thousand people back thirty years ago. There was probably only twenty thousand people living here in Bend. Now we're up over a hundred thousand. So the the people that are living here year round are mostly you know well off folks doing well, whether they are retired or you know, own businesses, looking to get out of the city and, and move into a beautiful place where they can enjoy all the things that they want to do. But then also, you know, a younger population of, of working class folks that, you know, are honestly kind of getting pushed out right now, which is the biggest challenge that, you know, our local leaders are, are having to tackle is how do we create a place where people can afford to live, they want to be here, they want to work here, and that'll help our, our small businesses and, and just our our entrepreneurial economy as a whole continue to thrive. And tell me about your business height digital and how you got started. Yeah. So go back a little ways here. I, I studied at the university of Oregon and, and really had a, had a and passion you took the for entrepreneurship class, a program, right? You, oh, 
Yeah, you did your research. Yeah, you, I was in the. Can you learn entrepreneurship? Did that teach you anything <laughs> that you need? I mean, I'm pretty skeptical. I used to teach entrepreneurship at Georgia State University. I'm still really skeptical. I don't know that you can teach the drive, the motivation, all of the things that are required. No, and I would agree with you. Um, I tell people all the time, you know, if if university is is your calling. You know, you got to go into it with the right expectations. You know, if your if your goal is to start a business, my recommendation would be to go go start a business or go go work at a small company, a startup, and and get that firsthand experience and and be in an entrepreneurial culture. That's where you're going to learn the most. For me, I I didn't learn the like you said the drive, the motivation, even some of the technical skills, the stuff that that they were teaching us from a you know a marketing standpoint especially was almost outdated by the time that, that we were out of school. But what I did learn was, was how to collaborate, how to work within a team, how to, how to be a good communicator, how to speak effectively. And, and those are skills that sure I would have learned, um, you know, out in the real world as well, but you know, my parents worked hard to send me to college and, and I wasn't going to say no. So I had, a, I had a good time. I parted my way through college. I did learn a lot, but if I were to go back knowing what I know now, I would have taken that that money and and invested it in starting a business and, and learning the hard way. I, I definitely think that's something that if you're called to take that entrepreneurial path, you're going to be better served getting that real world experience. But that led me to to where I am today. And I, I left Oregon. I moved down to the Bay Area, told myself I need to get a taste for for the corporate world. Jumped in, got an internship working as a, a marketing manager for a big commercial real estate company. And I was at an outdoor shopping center, 100 plus tenants, mostly small mom and pop businesses. And they came to me with all their questions about digital marketing. So I got that, that real world experience and got to really learn what was working now, what was effective now to be able to help our tenants grow and, and help drive foot traffic to the, the shopping mall. So that was a great experience. but. Fast forward a year, I'm feeling pretty burned out in that role. Not a whole lot of upward trajectory growth-wise. Living in the big city wasn't my wife and I, girlfriend at the time's cup of tea. We, we both thrive outdoors, grew up in small towns. So we were feeling the need to make a change. And we decided we were going to fulfill a, a dream that we'd always had, which was to go travel the world together. And we saved up. We ended up quitting those jobs, selling off most of our stuff, packed the rest into my parents' garage and bought one-way tickets to Southeast Asia, which ended up leading us on a 14-month journey, living out of backpacks, traveling around through Asia. And during that time, I was meeting all these digital nomads, people that were starting and scaling businesses, traveling and living in exotic places, working from their computers on the beach. And I had never experienced anything like that before, Jim. It was it was an incredible moment of aha, like, okay, there is another way to go about this. And I started taking these people out, buying them a beer, buying them coffee, just trying to pick their brains, learn what they were doing, how they got started. And eventually that, that led me to start my agency. I took those skills in digital marketing that I learned in that internship in the Bay Area and coupled my passion for wanting to serve local communities and have the freedom to be able to serve and work with people from anywhere that I wanted to be in the world. And that was back in 2016, started my first agency then. First couple of years, glorified freelancer, solopreneur, did all the wrong things, <laughs> really, really had a slow, slow start, which was mostly 
limited by my my ego, my lack of you know ability to ask for help and and find community. But over the years, I I started to flex that muscle more and more. I built a community around myself. I, I invested in myself, hired coaches, and really checked that ego and started asking for the help I need, which is when things really really started taking off and. Now we're, we're rocking and rolling today. We serve our clients all around the country, helping them with their brand, their, their digital marketing, their online presence to create more freedom in their lives as business owners and be able to grow their company so that they can support their community. They can create a great culture within their team and take that business wherever they want to at the end of the day. And most of those customers are service businesses, I think you said? Correct. Yeah, we, we work with a lot of industries, primarily service-based companies. So you're, what is service-based? Is that HVAC and plumbing? Yeah, a lot of home service companies. Okay. So HVAC and plumbing, you're exactly right there. Roofing companies, remodeling companies, but also professional services. We work with attorneys, um, CPAs, anything where you need to, to keep your pipeline full of good, qualified leads and most of those people are coming on to Google, they're searching online, they need to have additional nurturing through social media and, and all the other forms of marketing that we, we employ for our clients. But we also work with some other industries as well. We do some e-commerce, we work with adventure tour companies, things that are a little more in line with my personal passions and, and things that I like to do, which is always fun. But at the end of the day, we're looking to, to partner with people that are, are in it for more than just revenue growth. They have a purpose behind their their business. They're trying to give back to their community. They're trying to create a, a culture of stability and, and employ people and, and set them up for long-term success. And we use that as our, our motivation. When we can have a financial goal of where we're trying to take a company and back that up with, hey, when they get there, they're going to be able to take their entire team on this off-site retreat to, to Bali, Indonesia, or this solopreneur business owner who's been just grinding for years and years is going to take his first vacation with his family that he's never got to take. When we can back up the KPIs with that kind of motivation, that's, that's what we put up on the board and really use that as our goal and our, and our fuel to get there. I don't know if you already do this or not, but next door, I was on it yesterday, just kind of playing around. I'd never been on the website much, I, you know, two or three times, but I actually yep. spent 20 minutes on it yesterday. And I, started to notice that half of next door is people asking for recommendations for contractors and various home repair things. You should write some sort of API that scrapes next door and sends those requests automatically to your HVAC customer's cell phone. And if they are the first one to respond, they'll get 95% of that business. It's, mm -hmm. and I noticed there was one every 30 minutes. In my neighborhood, yep. someone asking for a contractor. I no, know, you're, I you're got totally a glass. Right. Anyone know a glass guy? I uh, want to build a new deck. Anyone know a deck guy? Every 30 minutes, I found one of these. And I was thinking, wow, if I were in that space, I, all I would do is hang out on next door all day. Because, my God, it was a flood of leads. You said you're that marketing was outdated, what you were learning in school dig into that a little bit more, TJ. What do you mean marketing outdated? What were yeah. you learning and how did that stuff grow old? I mean, this, a lot of the marketing hasn't changed. Maybe the channel has changed, but marketing is still the same. Know what a person's problem is and try to solve it, right? How is marketing changing in your mind? 
Yeah, but eat my own words there a little bit. I would say that it was it was a about a fifty fifty split. You know, the the principles, the philosophy, the the mechanics in terms of consumer behavior. You're absolutely right, Jim. Like those things have not changed, and they're valuable tools to have in the toolbox. The things that were more outdated were just kind of the more tactical, like, hey, what's what's working now in terms of social media, different advertising strategies, and, and just places to be utilizing. We didn't learn a lot of the, hey, this is what's working right now, and here's exactly how you can implement it kind of stuff. But to that, you know, having the foundation of understanding how consumers think, how to write good copy and actually speak into people's pain points, how to, how to communicate that effectively through both word and a visual brand. All of those things were, were very valuable. And, you know, I, I can't credit my, my professors enough for the, the amazing stuff that they did teach us. I just feel like when I came out of it, I still had a lot to learn in terms of, Hey, here are the tools, here are the platforms that you really need to be proficient in right now when it comes to digital marketing to be able to drive growth. And like Nextdoor is a good example. You know, right now, as you explained, people are going on there and they're looking for recommendations from their community on on who they want to work with. So as a contractor, the more you can build up your brand in your community, the more people that that know, like, and trust you, absolutely, if you're jumping in there and responding to those, you're going to get leads. But even better when your previous customers are the ones making those referrals for you. And that's that's the beauty. When people have that brand built up on Nextdoor, they're incentivizing their customers to be those brand advocates because they've done such a great job. They take care of the business that they're being hired to take care of. And people want to repay that at the end of the day. They're going to they're gonna help their community. They're going to help their friends by making those recommendations. So when you can build that system of referrals yeah, it's not the single sole source you want to rely on, but that's going to add major fuel to your marketing fire and allow you to really build on a foundation of stability. We just remodeled our kitchen and bath and a whole bunch of stuff. And uh, we probably went through 10 plumbers and 10 electricians before we found good guys, good people. Uh, my God, is it hard to find good people now? And so uh, once you do, you just want to shout, from the rooftop about them. I mean, my electrician, I want everyone to hire Brian because he's the best electrician in the world. He saved us a ton of money. He had great ideas that we hadn't had. You know, he was just amazing. Talked about how we could save money by using him less. How often do you hear people say that? TJ, I want to <laughs> change the topic real fast. What are you saying now working in digital marketing? What are some of the tools and techniques that you're using right now that are punching people through? Yeah. So it's a great question. I mean, the biggest thing for most service-based businesses has been and, and still remains being searchable. When people are looking for the services that you offer in your local community, you got to be at the top. You need to have your your SEO dialed in. You need to have your your Google business profile optimized and be collecting reviews so that you're showing up there in the top three and in the Google Maps results. 80% of people that aren't just getting a recommendation from a friend or a family member on who to work with are going on to Google and they're doing their due diligence. They're looking at reviews. They're seeing who's popping up. And oftentimes they're not just calling one and, and hoping for the best. They're starting at the top and, and working their way down, calling a couple people. So 
if you're not up there, your comp competition, your competitors are getting those calls before you. And that's, that's part of what we do. We come in and make sure that you have all of the pieces in play in terms of a strong online reputation, a well-optimized, proficient, fast, user-friendly website that answers the questions that people are asking about your services online. And thus, Google is rewarding you with that top page placement. And then beyond that, getting into, okay, we've, we can capture the people that are looking, they're actively in research mode, but how do we create that overall brand awareness? And that's where we employ more traditional forms of marketing. You know, direct mail is actually really effective right now, more so than it has been in many years. Coupling that with social media, different forms of digital advertising, using AI and programmatic ads to reach people on smart TVs when they're watching the game, they're watching their favorite shows and on those platforms, ads are being served. You can have your brand show up there. And when you're having that 360 degree approach where you're not only just reaching the people that are looking for you, but you're planting those seeds in your community and people are seeing you, that's what helps you be top of mind when that need happens, when the pipe breaks and now you need a plumber. Well, you've been in the periphery of that person online you know, they're seeing your truck with a cool truck wrap driving around town. You're sponsoring the little league team over here. You're doing all the things to be present and to show good, good faith, giving back to the community in some way, shape or form. And you're the one that they're going to think of and, and call first. So we developed you know, that. I've been, I just want to, I'm paying attention to the time here, TJ. We need to uh, pay attention. I've been really shocked with the on smart TV ads, the TV ads that I'm seeing that are clearly not TV ads, they're smart TV ads. I'm noticing a huge difference in quality and stuff like that. Apparently on smart TV, you don't have to have a quality ad. You can do an ad off your iPhone and put it up there with minimal editing and horrible acting. Maybe it's <laughs> the real owner, but I'm seeing the ad quality. I'm just shocked at some of the crap that people are paying to put up there. Um, I guess it's still working because I still see the ads two months later. Have you noticed yeah. this? Yeah. I mean, I think there's still, still a need for good, good advertising, but it doesn't need to be this tens of thousands of dollars in, in video production to, to create your, your Super Bowl ad. You know, if you're a local business, you can get by with doing stuff that's a little more organic. You know, maybe you, you don't do it on your iPhone. You, you invest in having some professional quality video created, but you can get by. And, and as long as you have a good message and, and you're communicating your, your value or communicating something like how you're giving back to the community, what sets you apart, showcasing the human element of your brand, all of that stuff's effective. But I couldn't agree more. You see a lot of <laughs> pretty crappy ads out there these days and, the ability to be able to go and, and purchase that ad inventory yourself or, or partner with an agency. There's, there's less QA quality control involved. Versus I'm surprised that the companies run some of the ads. I, if I were the owner of that, I would say, guys, I'm sorry, this ad's not good enough to run. Um, yeah. That's, that's where we come in to really steer our clients in the right direction. All right. Tell us about your podcast, The Adventurous Entrepreneur. Well, how do you qualify as adventurous? Do you have to be repelling while well, selling to be adventurous? Well, here's the reality. I mean, entrepreneurship is an adventure. And, and the theme of this podcast is, is really looking at it through the hero's journey and, and saying that, hey, no matter what 
you do, you're going down down this path of uncertainty. There's going to be wrong turns, lessons learned, people that guide you, your your Gandalf that guides you along the way towards the path of success. And no matter where you're at in business, there's lessons that we can tease out that'll help people. If if they're just getting started or thinking about a business, they've got a lot to learn. And if we can create those shortcuts through other people's stories, that's what we're all about. And yeah, maybe you're not a adventure junkie and that's okay. We have plenty of those on the show. We also have people that are not into the outdoors or adventure at all, but they're on their own adventure. And we want to be able to tell those stories. And And really the, the core principle of the podcast is how do we design our business in a way that optimizes for the lifestyle that we want to live? So many people start a business in the pursuit of freedom, but at the end of the day, they just get caught in that hamster wheel. They're, they're running and running and running and spinning their wheels. And they're not realizing the true goal that they had, spending more time with their family, doing things and taking trips with their friends, having time with their kids. So how do we do that from the outset and really build a business that allows us to do the things that we like to do with the people we care about most? Yeah, I mean, I, that's the whole reason. Uh, well, one of the reasons I became an entrepreneur is because I wanted to drive carpool really like carpool um you can't drive carpool if you have a job that's so. true <laughs> tj i love what you're doing and i love the life and congratulations on a really cool business how do we find out more get in touch and hire you yeah so i have a a link tree of sorts make it really easy to find all this stuff it's tjmurphy.me on that you'll find links to everything that i'm doing from the adventurous entrepreneurs podcast to height digital all my social media so that's a great place to to have your first first click and connect with me online fantastic great stuff congratulations and i hope you'll come back thanks a lot tj hey thanks jim great to be on the show we are out of time but you know what we do that's right we come back tomorrow be safe everyone take care and go make a million dollars bye now